Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become greedier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with my very close friend, Dr. Cynthia Rutherford. She's an Air Force psychiatrist, and we're sitting at the beautiful resort on Coronado Island by San Diego. And today's conversation will be about childhood emotional and sexual trauma. Please keep in mind, this topic may be difficult for some and may bring up some intense emotions. Hi, Cynthia. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for agreeing to spend this time with me. So let's start out discussing your career, what you do in the Air Force, so that the listeners know who they're listening to. Okay. So I came into the Air Force late. I had initially trained as a family physician, but it wasn't quite as rewarding as I needed it to be. So I retrained into psychiatry. And at that point, I came into the Air Force and served a few years with you down at Wright-Patterson. And over time, we remained friends. And now I'm out in New Mexico working in the desert. You actually deployed and then you decided to leave the service and then you came back eventually. Correct. And then you've been serving in the Air Force now for the last what? I've been back on active duty three years. Three years, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So physician totally, total for how many years? 21. Wow. Long career. Yeah. 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 And psychiatrist for how many years? Uh, since 2009, so almost 10 years. Okay. Awesome. Very rewarding career, right? Yes. And, and you love what you do now. Absolutely. I tried to recruit you to come to <laughs> LA, but yes. you refuse. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I really enjoy Holloman. It's um, a remarkable place. It, it's definitely in the desert, but... Uh, it's a, a great mission, and I very much enjoy the people I work with. Yeah, no, that's a good answer. Yeah, yeah. I love LA. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the topic is emotional and sexual childhood trauma. And both of us being in mental health, we see this every day, but it's of course different when we encounter it ourselves. So tell me about your childhood, how you grew up in context of that topic. It was chaos. Um, you know, the, the early years, even, you know, zero to four, uh, chaos, divorce, family disruption, and I think I didn't really understand how chaotic it was. Then my mom remarried when I was about six, and living with mom, with my big sister, my mother was, she was caring human being, but she was extremely labile and explosive. So just very intense, up and down emotions, very argumentative, very 
essentially she was a bit of a bully. My stepfather was a cop and was 6'2", and my mom was 5'1", and I think he was very afraid of her. Hmm. Uh, She was a very intense woman. And when she became enraged, she would become very destructive and breaking dishes and screaming and yelling and for little things. So one of the most intense memories I have as a very young child, I think I was in first or second grade, was uh, my sister and I were tasked with, you know, doing the dishes, cleaning up the kitchen, and we left crumbs in the silverware tray. And she absolutely exploded, breaking dishes. And I just remember seeing her screaming and just the, the rage in her face and just throwing glass and breaking and her standing in the kitchen. It was like that galley kitchen where she was standing there and we're just looking up at her and just seeing this, this mad woman. And I was terrified. You know, I, I remember from that point actually sleeping in my sister's bed because I didn't feel comfortable sleeping alone. And what's the age difference? Uh, she's two and a half years older. Yeah, she's my big sister. Always protected me. And I think I, I survived because of her. You know, and it progressed. My stepfather and mom would argue um, pretty intense, not physically violent. My mom actually never put her hands on either my sister or I. But she would terrify us. And the relationship between those two, my stepdad and my mom, disintegrated when I was about 12 years old. And because of the chaos and the fighting between the two of them, pretty much close to every year or every other year, we were going back to live with our father in Texas. And then we'd go back to Colorado when things calmed down. So I very rarely began and ended a school year in the same school. And then at age 12, my stepdad and mom decided to divorce. Because of old arguing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, although my mom actually blamed it on my sister, saying that it's because they can't get along, mm-hmm. um, which enraged me, made me very angry. I was very protective of her because of my sister. And I remember just being very upset. And I, I just knew it wasn't right. Even though I was 12 years old, it's like, that, that's not fair. And so my mom sat us down, and my stepdad was in the kitchen. The kitchen was kind of behind us, and I was sitting next to my sister. My sister was on the other side to my mom, and I could see my stepfather in the kitchen. And my mom sits us down and says, we're going to get a divorce, so I'm going to send you and your sister to live with your father in Texas because I don't want you to come home and find my brain splattered on the bedroom wall. Mm. And it took me a long time to be willing to verbalize what I felt, to really acknowledge what I felt in that moment, but it was, do it. Like, I, I felt like it would be a relief. So you wanted it to happen? Yeah. What you felt in the moment was, it would be a relief? It would be a relief. I was, I think, tired of the chaos. It was exhausting, the disruption. And after my stepfather left, things derailed quite a bit. You know, it wasn't easy for my mom. She was working three jobs at the time, trying to raise two daughters, and there were times there wasn't enough food. My sister was making cornmeal mush for us to eat for dinner. It was tight. Lots of getting to school with my pajama top still on because, like life, there was no one really there to help me stay on track. Sounds like chaos. Yeah. 
she worked as a co-check girl at a restaurant and then in the middle of the night would clean a clinic. So my sister and I were pretty much on our own most of the time. So my sister was 14 going on 15, trying to keep me under wraps. I wasn't a bad kid. I was outdoorsy and would love to go in the mountains. And I think I scared her quite a bit getting home late. We stayed together. We stayed pretty close. And she kept me, for the most part, out of trouble. But it was during that time that the next-door neighbor took an interest in me and gave me a little motorcycle. And I would take that motorcycle and go riding. The cost of that was he would have me touch him. And at one point, he took me to a rodeo, and on the way back, he had me please him manually, and his ejaculate got on my tennis shoes. Mm -hmm. And we were pretty poor. I couldn't afford another pair of tennis shoes, and so the rest of the year, until I outgrew them, there was his stain on my tennis shoe, and it was something that I looked at every day. Mm -hmm. And it was repulsive to me. And very, like, I didn't, I didn't know uh, what to do about it. Anytime I brought a problem to my mom, she was explosive. She was protective of us, but the cost was so great. We were afraid of my mom's reaction to any issue, so we, we didn't get in trouble. I would never, ever get in trouble at school. I was terrified of how my mom would behave. So despite all of that going on at home, you were still a good student? Well, no, I was a C student at best. I don't think I ever failed until sophomore year of high school. I never failed a course. I passed, but I didn't make great grades. My teachers would kind of get on to me because they felt like I was a better student and they knew my older sister and she was a good student. But obviously there were other things I was dealing with and school was not a priority. Sports were a priority. I played soccer and played boys football and at that point I started competitive swimming. And the competitive swimming drew me back to Texas to live with my father and it turned out I was pretty good at it. I pretty much won first place in every swim meet. I can attest to swimming with Cynthia one day. I was training really hard, working out every day, swimming. And we ended up going to the pool, and she didn't swim for like five years. And she smoked me in the pool, smoked me. I looked like I was standing still, like I was sinking, <laughs> uh, swimming backwards maybe. No, it's, I, it's... And you said it's amazing how just the skill came back to you. Yeah, I'm an efficient swimmer. And I loved it. I was particularly good at butterfly and freestyle. And within two summers, I qualified for championship A team on AAU. And my coach, who had been an Olympic swim coach, had two Olympic swimmers under his tenure, felt like I was going to be going to the Olympics. And this was back in the 70s. How much did you train then? Um, so on AAU, I would get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. We actually lived about 45 minutes outside of Houston. And so my father would get me up in the morning, drive me to swim practice. My stepmom would pick me up that morning, take me to school. And then in the afternoon, she would take me back to swim practice. And then my dad would pick me up on the way home. And my dad's business was in Houston and we lived outside of Houston. And you did it every day? Every day. Five days a week? Five days a week. Five days a week. And then the weekends? 
uh, usually meets. So pretty much close to six days a week training. So how many hours would you say every day? Five to probably five to seven. It's been so long ago, I don't remember the time. I just know that we had to get up at four. And usually in the morning we would run or lift weights. In the afternoon we would do swimming. So strength and aerobic training in the morning and then technique training in the afternoon was pretty consistent. And you loved it? I loved it. Yeah, we swam at least 40 laps every day on each stroke. And so it was pretty intense. Hmm. The problem was my father decided to molest me. He would wake me up in the morning. And in my 12-year-old brain, I think that was my mom and stepdad divorcing seventh grade. My dad molested me was eighth grade. So I quit swimming. It was the only way I thought I could escape from him waking me up in the morning was I, I simply just quit. So he would wake you up at 4 a.m. Yeah. right before the practice? Yeah. And my, my 12-year-old brain, it made sense. At 12 or 13, I, I don't remember. It was the, the fall of my eighth grade year. And my stepmom, she asked me about it, like, what's going on? And all I could say was, I feel like a drowning rat. I just, that was the words, those were the words that came into my head. Drowning rat? Yeah. And it was symbolic. I was drowning. And I didn't feel like I had any value in the world, but I was also terrified. If I told my mother, I was afraid that she would kill my father. And my father and my stepmom were more financially stable, and my stepmom was actually very stable, emotionally very kind, healthy limits. We had dinner at the table. She cooked. She stayed home. It was a more traditional upbringing, and it felt safe. And so it felt like a trade-off for me. I, I didn't know at the time that he was molesting my older sister and that I had a stepsister as well. And all of us thought we were protecting the other by keeping it quiet, hmm. that we were taking the burden. And it was only much later we realized what was happening. How did you find out? Um, <laughs> my stepsister got pregnant. Wow. Not from him. She was a year younger than I was. And my father lost his mind and sat all three of us down and was yelling at us and talking about how difficult his life was. And he couldn't believe that we would shame him in that way. And uh, he worked so hard to get to this place. And how could we possibly do that? We're a bunch of sluts. And I had that thought in my head again. Who... Do you think you are? Mm -hmm. Again, none of us told our stepmom, but we started talking. And we didn't talk much. I also knew that my older sister took great caution. We had a little brother as well, a stepbrother, and my sister would take great caution to keep us always with her. She was dating age at that point, had boyfriends, and the role was, you date me, my siblings come along. <laughs> so we were always with her. She pretty much didn't let us stay alone in the house with him. He hated her. He was demeaning and very condescending and just mean to her. It broke my heart. 
I was definitely the favorite child. I was the competitive swimmer. I was the athlete. And so I made the family externally look normal, like the all-American family. And so I, I was treated differently than my other siblings. And it, it, I felt bad. My little sister was not treated well. My big sister wasn't treated well. And they just kind of forgot about my little brother. And I was kind of the golden kid. And you don't realize how difficult that is for both. When you're not the favorite child, there tends to be some resentment. But they never treated me that way. They, they just loved me. And I am very, very blessed because of the love that I received from, from my big sister in particular, but my little sister as well, I survived. I felt like I was held up. And in high school, at one point, I went back to Colorado with my mom. And at that point, she started to use cocaine. She was supporting her habit by selling. So she was selling drugs out of the home that I was living in. And so people were coming in to get cocaine, and her live-in boyfriend at the time smoked weed like, like people smoke cigarettes. In the midst of that, I'm trying to get my high school education and grow up and figure out what I want to be when I leave the house. What do I want to do? I was on the basketball team, and I was decent. I was a starter, and still in the level of chaos. Coming home, there's a scale with eighth of an ounce of cocaine on the dinner table that you eat dinner off of, and she's weighing out grams of cocaine. And her boyfriend's over there smoking away on pot, playing the recorder. The recorder's like a musical instrument. He liked to play that when he got high. And just the the image of that in my head was crazy. And then later eating dinner at the same table where drugs were being parceled out was, it was just, but it, I didn't know any different. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did in Texas, but at the time where I grew up in Colorado, it was kind of the snow capital, meaning cocaine, of the world, and it was very prevalent during that time. So a lot of times people thought my mom was really cool. She seems really laid back. I didn't have any rules. And the craziness is that I didn't get in trouble. I, I actually was afraid to get in trouble because I didn't think anybody would be there to bail me out. So I made sure I didn't do really crazy things. I grew up pretty quickly. And my mom derailed pretty severely. It started in my late junior year. And by the early part of my senior year, she was psychotic. She was taking Demerol and Dalmine to come down from the cocaine. And she was, she was just really ill from her, her drug addiction. One night, it got really bad, and she took too much of either Demerol or Dalmine. And these are, Demerol's a narcotic, uh, Dalmine is a, like, Valium. And she lay down on the bed, and she was hallucinating, talking about tools, golden tools organized on the wall. She always loved tools. and Tools, like repair tools? Like wrenches, yes. Oh, yeah. Well, why is that? Why did she love them? Mm-hmm. Uh, she was very mechanically inclined, when she was younger, she used to work on cars with my father, and they would race cars, actually. Oh, okay. And so she wanted a shop that had golden tools, and, or at least this was the mm-hmm. fantasy in her psychotic state. And she was talking about it, and she laid down in bed. 
And I'm standing on one side, and my mom's boyfriend, John, was standing on the other side. And we're both looking at her, and I'm watching her. And she stops breathing. Mm. And I'm like, it's finally over. Like, mm-hmm. And John panics, starts shaking her, and she starts breathing again. And then she bolts up, runs out of the room, grabs me, runs out of the room. She, We get in the car, and at the time she was managing a dry cleaners, and she drove to the dry cleaners, and like I said, very mechanically inclined, she pulls up to the cleaners, she pops the hood of the car, and she takes the, the air cleaner, the top of the air cleaner back in the day was this metal thing with the wing nut, just a simple nut on top, She took the lid of the air cleaner off, flipped it over, and screwed the wing nut back down. She said, there, John can't take the car. I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Pretty brilliant. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Or you could just take the key. (laughs) Yeah. Or that's not going to do anything. But she was psychotic. And at that point, it was 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm just so tired. I'm just, I mean, I don't know if it's 3 o'clock, but... I mean, I forgot to say that before we got in the car, she dragged me down the side of the mountain. Literally, the apartments were up on a ridge and dragged me down. John and his friend were trying to find us because clearly she's out of her mind. I'm afraid to let her go. So literally, we're she's hiding. She's like, shh, they're trying to find us. Like very mm. paranoid. Mm. And then gets back up and runs, and that's when she gets in the car. I mean, it was just, it was beyond unbelievable what was happening so back to the dry cleaners so she puts me inside and she makes a pallet for me uh, like a place to sleep and she says lay down here I'm going to go back to the house and talk to John I'm like okay great so I just went to sleep Uh, a few hours later my mom calls and says there's going to be a police officer at the door please let him in he's going to bring you home it's like okay um uh, okay, get in the car, and I get up to the house, and there are police cars everywhere around the apartment. I go inside, and there's one or two police officers still in the house. John is there, my mom is there, and mom tells me that she held a loaded gun to John's head when she went back to the house, and that it was a SWAT situation. And ironically, my stepdad's old partner heard who it was on the radio, and he came and he was able to de-escalate the situation. They didn't arrest her. They took her weapon, but they didn't arrest her. I don't know why they didn't do anything, but it was another failure of authority figures not stepping in to intervene. There were signs, and it was just a recurrent situation. How old are you at the time? I was a junior, so I was already driving, 16. That was the summer. She also told me she'd had a a miscarriage when she was pregnant after I was born. And during the miscarriage, she had to have a hysterectomy. During that summer, she said that the reason I had a hysterectomy is because I had cancer and that the cancer has come back. And she would take a tongue depressor, and she's like, these are polyps. And she would shove it down her throat. And, and I was freaked out. Like, it, it, like it, it scared me what I was seeing. And it was just, it's all, that summer was just insane. So you've never disclosed your 
sexual abuse to anybody? At that point, no. Other than you spoke with your sisters? Sisters, yeah. At that point, no. And do you remember why was that? Separately, my sister and I decided that we were afraid our mother would kill our father, that he would be dead, we wouldn't have a home in Texas, she would be in jail. So there wasn't a choice. So it was a very practical decision on your part? Yeah. Kind of a survival yeah. decision? Definitely. And really, every decision was based on that, just surviving. You know, you figure it out. I started working at 14 to earn money. We were very, very self-sufficient, very independent. You really learned to do whatever we needed to do to get through and take care of ourselves and not be noticed in a negative way. We did not want attention drawn to us. The craziness is my basketball coach actually lived right around the corner, never said anything, never talked to me, never pulled me aside. It's a very small town. Like, this is not... And my mom was well-known. You know, it is a small town. Nobody ever said anything. Nobody ever talked to us. Looking back, what are your thoughts about people not intervening? I'm of two minds. I think people dismiss it. They don't want to believe it because my mom looked normal. She's a nice lady, intelligent. could be a little intimidating, like it's none of your business kind of thing. On the other side, I think I'm angry. I was very disappointed. I've learned not to trust authority figures. I just learned that I have to work with them and they're going to have control and authority over me, but I don't expect much from them. And I still struggle with that. I struggle with conflict, confronting an authority figure. I will avoid it if at all possible. It's a daily conscious effort. I have to be mindful because there are parts of me that will stand up aggressively. So I have to be very mindful if I'm being triggered because I feel like somebody's being a bully. I have to be mindful and take a time out, decompress before I try to address that issue because I get protective. And I've had commanders be overly aggressive in terms of how they approach me, just abrupt or very forceful, aggressive language. I, I react and I don't want to be in that situation. But you also now have enough insight and, and control, right? I've learned to navigate the world, but it's exquisitely difficult, even to this day. I was deployed, and we were in a unique situation where Navy, Army, and Air Force all had different aspects of command. Mm -hmm. And the Army does things very differently when it comes to certain aspects of mental health. And our unit was trying to express this to the Air Force Administrative Command, that we felt like this really conflicted with our AFIs and we had concerns. And our immediate supervisor, I don't think he was a squadron commander, he was at a different base, but he came over uh, with the superintendent and we were talking and he looks at us and he says, well, the Army owns you. You can't say no to the Army. I knew in that moment there was nothing I could say. There was nothing I could do. I just kept my mouth shut. But those kinds of situations that would retrigger kind of take you back to to the moments of feeling helpless, out of control? And enraged. Mm, enraged. Uh, I was very angry. I expected so much more. And I think that's the part I've had to temper over time. As I've gotten older, I've understood that we all are doing the best we can. And I've learned to be very empathic with others. 
um, and I don't take it personally. As I got through my adolescence and into life, I learned to even have empathy towards my mother and my father. I don't accept their behavior. It was not okay, but they were broken people. They were very wounded for whatever reason. And I think being able to understand context, my mom had lost control. She had a terrible addiction, and she struggled, and she was a very wounded soul. And she gave me such gifts in other ways. She taught me that I was strong, and she taught me that I was smart. I never, ever doubted that she loved me, and I never, ever doubted that she was proud of me. And the same is true of my father. And those bits and pieces, there were people along the way, my best friend's mother, and definitely my big sister, my stepmom, uh, when I was 19. I was already graduated high school, and in Texas at the time, you could drink at 19. And I was drinking a fair amount, partying. It was summer and all this stuff. And she sat me down one time. I, I had failed to do an errand for her. And also, <laughs> let me qualify that. I had not picked my little brother up when I was supposed to, and he ended up having to walk almost two miles to get home. And so my stepmom, rather than yelling and screaming and punishing me, she sat me down and said, you have alcoholism in your family. And if you ever want to toast at your wedding, you cannot become an alcoholic. And I think that was the first time an authority figure ever sat down with me and explained to me why my behavior needed to change, that they cared enough to stand up and say, this is unhealthy behavior. And if you want a different outcome, you have to choose different behavior. And it mattered to this day. I remember that clear as bell. And I think those are the things, those little things, like understanding that the world did not revolve around my trauma. My trauma defined who I was my early childhood, my early adulthood. I went into mental health because I thought, well, I survived all these things. I, I can help others. And I worked in a residential facility as a mental health worker and working with kids that have gone through a lot of trauma. And I thought, I want to make a difference. I want to use these experiences and turn it into something good, sort of in an undoing sort of way. Make this meaningful in some way. And in reality, I have. But at 19, 20 years old, trying to help significantly mentally ill kids, I recognized very quickly that I had some things I needed to learn. And so I did. I was a little afraid of mental health. I knew I needed more maturity. And so when I went to medical school, like I knew I wanted to make a difference. And I knew that, you know, the things that I went through prepared me and strengthened me. And, and I knew I could survive. I, I could do that. So tell me, how did you decide, at what point did you know that you would be going to medical school and that you're going to succeed? Given the conditions in which you were growing up and you said you were an C student, didn't fail anything, at least until the last couple of years, right. but really you weren't necessarily the intellectual of your classroom. No. What, what happened? What turned for you? And why did you have that ambition? And how were you able to achieve that? It took me a long time to get through undergrad. I didn't have money, so I had to work. And I didn't know about student loans at the time. 
So I worked part-time, tried to go full-time. That didn't work. I actually had to drop out. That was when I was working as a mental health worker. I had to go back home and live with my mother for a while and try to sort it out. Enrolled again in school in Colorado State. I went to Colorado State for a while, and I got a good job in Denver, and so I ended up dropping out of Colorado State and going to Denver and working my way through undergrad in Denver. And it's going to sound a little crazy, but that was my first impulse to be a psychologist in high school. I loved, I took psychology my senior year, and I absolutely loved it. And that was my first exposure and what really drew me to, I think I, I, think I can help people. But like I said, I got really scared. And I, after working in mental health, I knew I needed to figure things out. I took the opportunity to kind of explore other things. And it felt like, like I would try to go down this path. I tried to go to business school. And I sort of felt like this hand of God sort of smacked me and said, hey, that's not what I have planned for you. And then I tried computer science. And I felt like I got smacked again, like this is not your path. And I really did have sort of a spiritual experience because when I turned and took the sciences, I I was so afraid of physics and chemistry. But when I turned and faced it, and I turned and faced my fear and went right at it, just like I would as an athlete, just aggressively turn, just charge at it, it it just, it it made sense. Hmm. I was older. I was 25 at the time, and maybe my frontal lobe matured, and maybe things just made a lot more sense. But everything felt easy. Mm. Like my grades shot up. Um, you know, the, the courses I failed in high school, I failed geometry twice in high school. I actually got kicked off the basketball team my sophomore year because of my grades. I mean, I was, not, I was really struggling. And in college, I found a great teacher who could really explain it to me in a way that I could comprehend it. And I would look at it and go, why didn't they say that before? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I also think at 25, I could understand what they were saying. And chemistry was fun. It made sense to me. And I'd always loved biology. I made good, good grades in biology and English. Like I was a, a good writer. I won awards for my writing in high school. It was really the math that, that kicked my butt. But in college, I mean, I became a chemistry major. And I made very good grades in my sciences, of course. And I think when I interviewed for med school, I think what they saw in me was, I think I I am unique. I think my childhood molded me. It, it, It taught me so much. And I've parlayed those skills, learning how to reach somebody, connect with somebody, learning how to to really love somebody. And the mentors I've had along the way in my training, even in family medicine, med school, people who talked about empathy, people who talked about respecting people, I struggled a lot with the concept of healing. I'm always mindful of of being judgmental, but I don't believe that we heal people. I think people heal themselves. I think my job is to, to provide a safe space for them to say it out loud. I bear witness to their story. And they figure it out. I think just providing that safe space, that frame. And when I'm able to do that and able to get my ego out of the way and truly be present with somebody, there's not a feeling like that on earth. It is amazing. And I'm so grateful to the Air Force because I can practice the kind of 
psychiatry that I want to practice. It, it's a privilege, truly, to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I it, feel that way, too. Yeah. yeah. I really, I, I came back in because I missed it. Mm. You said when you were going through the interviews to med schools, they saw something new that was unique and special. And you know what was on the tip of my tongue is when they saw in you was grit. They saw in you was, was your ability to overcome, right? Your ability to overcome and grow and become something else and morph and navigate the environment the way you needed to, right? Right. I had a guidance counselor um, in middle school and high school in Aspen, and she knew both my sister and I. And Barb was her name, Barb Tarbert. And she became the principal my junior year. And so this other guy came in. He looked at my grades. I mean, I did terribly on the, the PSAT, and I'd failed geometry. And he looked at me and said, you should go to vocational school. <laughs> Barb chased me the rest of the year trying to get me to come talk to her about college. Even though she was no longer my guidance counselor, she would leave notes. And I kept avoiding her. And I was afraid because I knew she was not someone who would let it pass. She would ask the hard questions, and I knew I couldn't keep from telling her the truth. Can you imagine how different your life could have been if you didn't take that leap of faith and didn't go to medical school when to vocational school instead? You know, well, in my mind, being a doctor is being is a vocation. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I interpret it. <laughs> um, but in, in the interview, I kid you not, in the med school interview, they looked at me and they said, if you don't get in this year, what will you do? If you don't get into med school, what will you do? I said, I smiled and I said, I'll see you next year. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was my attitude. I, I felt like there was, you know, we talked about sort of your life experience, and there was no turning back. And for me, there was nowhere to go but up forward. Mm-hmm. You mean when I immigrated? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there wasn't, um, I was responsible for me. Mm-hmm. And I needed to find a way to set goals and reach those goals. Mm-hmm. And I remember telling my parents this, and I think they were kind of shocked because they knew I wasn't a great academic. But the reality is, I will... I will figure it out. I will not give up until I figure it out. If I believe in it and have faith in the mission, in the goal, I will not quit. Mm. Quitting swimming was something, when I listened to the podcast on Orb, it really resonated with me because I quit. And I know what it's like to quit. And when we boycotted the Olympics in 84, that would have been when I would have been competing and that was hard. And it's something I remember, something I have to be careful of. Quitting is something you can become very comfortable with. And recently my struggle trying to make the leap to try to really be competitive for 06, to put myself in that leadership position, I still have those vulnerabilities and fears and am I good enough? I still struggle with those because I've recently realized that I've so far outstretched what anybody ever thought I could achieve that am I going to go too far and finally I fail and they're going to see, see, I told you so. Mm. I I struggle with that and and I'm turning to face that now because I realize I'm no different than any other human being. We all have our wounds. I just turn my wounds into my gifts. I love being vulnerable with my patients and 
allowing myself to keep them in this safe emotional space and, and watch them grow. It's, it's the most incredible experience. What would you recommend to those who are struggling with difficult times right now? What has worked for you that you would recommend? It really comes down to empathy and self-respect, and, and not self-respect the way people interpret it. A lot of folks um, come from different religious backgrounds, but I think judgment is pretty universal that it's not our place to judge. The concept of self-respect, I think people tend to be very judgmental of themselves. They'll judge others less harshly than they will themselves. And I'll ask folks, and I ask myself, I, I do a lot of self-talk now. I see myself I don't know if this is, this is something you want to keep in this, but I literally do this. When I'm, I've made a mistake or I've, done, I've not achieved, achieved the level that I wanted to achieve, I literally see myself as a little girl. Mm. And I see myself with my hair wild. I had mm. wild hair as a kid, Coke bottle glasses, my little soccer uniform. And I'm back there screaming and yelling, going, ah! And in my mind's eye, I say, come here, let me give you a hug. Mm. And I, I internally hug myself, we're going to be okay. And I reassure myself, I self-soothe, and that helps me. But I challenge the airmen that I work with, I challenge them to treat themselves with the same level of respect that they treat others. Mm. I ask them, would you ever treat somebody the way you treat yourself? Right, the kinds of things we say to ourselves when we don't do well, when we fail, when we feel ashamed. Yep. That can be pretty, pretty discouraging. It is. And going down that rabbit hole. So I, I really do. And, and I tell them what I do. I tell them mm. that empathy is, is the most important part of what I do. Self-empathy. Yeah. 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 And that's how I heal. That's how I'm able to do my work. Day in, day out, listening to someone's life stories over and over and hearing that level of pain can be draining for a lot of people. Uh, for me, it, it, it's actually the opposite. I feel like when I'm able to bear witness to somebody's suffering, it is such a privilege that they yeah. trust me. Privilege um, is a good word. Yeah, yeah it is yeah. a privilege. Yeah. And I tell them that. I tell them I, I really appreciate you trusting me. It matters to me that you do. And, and in doing that, it allows them... I had a gentleman tell me the other day, I said, how come you can tell me these things? He said, because you won't weaponize it. Mm. You won't use it against me. Yep. And I think that has been the greatest gift. Mm. I think early I was very angry, and that was what people recognized in my early 20s was that I was very angry. Uh, my anger propelled me. I used that rage to prove the world wrong, that I was not just an object for sexual assault. I was not an object to be screamed at and belittled or intimidated or terrified. But the problem is it was not helpful in interpersonal relationships. And so I had to recognize that that's a sledgehammer. It's a tool. My anger is a tool, and I can use it when I need to. When I was able to really comprehend empathy, that I don't have to be that way, that I can simply be soft. When somebody comes at me aggressively, you ask me the question of how I deal with it. I don't have to use aggressiveness. Mm -hmm. I think being a woman in the military is such a challenge. 
And I think it's hard for people to continue to be mad or angry or aggressive with me because I simply don't allow myself to respond that way. I respond with respect and empathy and I treat them with dignity. But you also don't bottle up rage, right? It's not like you feel no. really angry and then you just bottle up and walk away and feel frustrated, no. angry and continue to ruminate, right? You, no. you almost make it dissipate. Actually, it's completely dissipated. And I, you said it very concisely one time, we are all doing the best we can do. And that really encapsulated when I see somebody, like with my mother, I, I realized that she did the best she could. Like, like I said, she was working three jobs at mm -hmm. the time. There was no way she could be attentive to our needs at that time. She was barely able to put enough food on the table, right? I mean, literally, there wasn't food. My sister was making cornmeal mush for dinner. It was that bad. I mean, we had a roof over our head. It was better than a lot, but it still was very stressful. And But I can look back and realize that she really just did the best she could. And when somebody is that angry, I try to figure out what it is that I can do differently Is there an issue that I need to address? Is there something I need to correct? And I try to clarify that issue. And then I go correct it. But I don't take it personally. If there's somebody I trust, I will come back to them and say, hey, I do better if, if you correct me or you redirect me in this way. I learn more effectively this way. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to have to work very hard to stay emotionally present to hear what you're saying when you're displaying anger towards me. I've learned to take timeouts. Timeouts are amazing. I actually tease my patients, particularly with kids. I tell them, use it. Say to your kids, I'm upset. I need to go take a timeout. And I tell them, your kids are probably going to giggle hysterically about it. But the reality is we all need to take a timeout when we cannot focus our thoughts well enough to communicate effectively. And if we're starting to use our anger as a weapon and take our anger out on somebody else, that's not okay. We're causing more wounds. And so I work hard at trying to understand what the person's trying to say to me. And if they continue, I simply do walk away. I, I say, I'm sorry, I need, to, I need to step away for a moment. And I do. It's hard The more attached or personally invested I am with the person, the more I value their friendship, the harder it is because I value them. I'm scared. I don't want to lose that friendship kind of thing. But it's those relationships that are even more important to deal with conflict and work with it. But it's a struggle. I'm very independent. And when somebody is making it hard for me to understand them or work with them, I'm going to work around them. You know, we've learned to be very creative in the Air Force of, I need to get this job done. This person's an obstacle in my way. I need to take care of patients. And so we do our job. We don't necessarily go in such a direct line, not necessarily jumping chain of command, but we figure out how to get the job done. General Murphy last week talked about the vampires within the Air Force. The people that are obstructionists, that are naysayers, we learn to work around those folks because they're negative. They're not helpful in trying to get the mission done. And you have to recognize that, you know, there are people who are stuck. And I, I can be empathic the vast majority of the time. I'd say 80% of the time I can be empathic with them. There's 20% of the time that I really struggle. And I get mad and I get upset and 
a few weeks ago, I had a situation that was very distressing to me. And it took me a while to get myself to a place where I could, okay, I need to deal with this. And I dealt with it, but it took me three weeks to calm down <laughs> to mm -hmm. be able to yeah, address it. Yeah. So you're saying you, you like every other normal person, you get upset, but you have very good strategies to, to overcome those upsets. So far, what I've gathered, taking time out, walking away when you know you're too emotional, you're going to react in yep. productive ways, and especially when you know situations will trigger you. Yep. It's definitely practicing that self-compassion and non-judgmental attitudes towards yourself. And very specifically, you said, it's literally imagining yourself being a kid, being innocent or vulnerable. Yep. You were saying, as part of previous discussions, is not being self-absorbed. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I know that I'm a part of something bigger than myself. We cannot exist without each other. You know, we, we need each other. We're a pack species. We don't do well in isolation. We have to have people that we reach out to, have support that are going to allow us to have our shame storm and not try to fix it. All those things. Recognizing that I was an introvert. I didn't know that I was an introvert. That when I do my work, when I'm done for the day... I need to go be quiet and alone for the most part. I need to kind of process those things that I, that I dealt with through the day and to be ready for the next day. And if I'm engaged in a social event after work during the week, it degrades me over that week because it's emotionally exhausting to be in social environments. And I, I didn't know that about myself. It, it took me until I was almost over 40 to realize... Mm -hmm. You were over 40. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> All right. Um, here, this was uh, Dr. Cynthia Rutherford, an Air Force psychiatrist. Uh, it was such a pleasure Thank talking you. to you. It was wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your story with, with us and with all the listeners. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and grit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical or psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's anna.v.fedotova.mil at mail.mil.